Hello and welcome. I'm Charles Keaton, editor of Alliance, the magazine bringing you news, views and analysis of philanthropy worldwide. You're listening to Alliance Audio, the podcast for philanthropy practitioners. In today's podcast, I'm joined by the philanthropist and social entrepreneur Fran Perrin. Fran is perhaps best known in philanthropy circles for her work helping to set up 360 Giving, which is leading a veritable transparency revolution in British philanthropy because it's creating a common online standard for sharing funding data. But Fran is also the founder and director of the Africa focused Indigo Trust, one of a network of 18 trusts established by the Sainsbury family following their success with the UK grocery business. What's more, Fran is an alumni of an elite training programme for aspiring philanthropists, the Philanthropy Workshop. Fran, it's a real pleasure to have you with us at Alliance Audio. Thanks for having me here. Well, perhaps we can start with the Philanthropy Workshop. Uh, you're a relatively young philanthropist and some of your skills, your knowledge and your experiences will have been you know, coming of age with that training at the workshop. So what did it teach you? Can philanthropy be taught? Absolutely, it can be taught. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people who Googled how to be a philanthropist and came across the philanthropy workshop. And I always think it's one of the luckiest things that happened to me that I did. I'd inherited at 18, had set up my philanthropic foundation straight away, but really stumbled around for a few years, not knowing what it meant to be a donor, how to do it well. And I it seemed to me that everybody else just knew what they were doing and I was the only one who was clueless. So at the same time I'd been having my day job, my professional career in the civil service. I was in the cabinet office working in the prime minister's strategy unit and there I was being trained on how to do my job. There was professional development. And so I thought, well, there must be some for philanthropists. Found the workshop, did that in 2010 and it was transformative for me. Because here were a group of people saying there is a way to be strategic and effective and it is a skill you can learn. And great if you can do that without any help. But most donors I met need some help. So on could that you journey. give some examples of some of the skills you did learn and some of the people perhaps you met or some of the causes you got to see? Yeah. So the philanthropy workshop is a combination of classroom based learning, talking about what it means to have a strategy and a focus how to create a roadmap for your giving, how to map the sector, research a topic, um, how to do due diligence on charities, how to learn and continue in the role. And then some of it is about field trips to meet different charities, spend a week in a developing country, expose you basically to lots of different ideas and different models. It isn't saying there's one way to do this well, but there is a toolkit. It's also a remarkable peer learning where you actually want to be able to ask the stupid questions you might be afraid to ask anyone else, but you can do that safely within that group. Mm. The big thing it taught me was that you need to find your focus. It's very hard to do philanthropy well if you're scattergun and reactive. Um, you might stumble upon things by luck, but actually you need to focus just to make it manageable. There are so many important problems, so many good causes that you could fund. Somehow you need to limit yourself. And did that lesson about needing to focus and form your approach to the work you do with the Indigo Trust? Absolutely. Uh, I'd been funding for some years by then and had funded a lot of projects I'm, I'm very pleased to have been involved with. But I couldn't tell why some succeeded and one, why some couldn't. And sometimes I couldn't even tell if they were really succeeding. And so for me saying, this is bounded, I'm going to concentrate on one area, that allowed me to become more expert on it. So I was more informed about the charities. I could think upstream, not just about treating symptoms, but looking at the roots of problems. 
and also aligning it with my own personal interests and passion. And perhaps you could say a little bit for our listeners about those interests and how those interests are reflected in the philanthropic work of, of Indigo. So I started off agonising about what was the most important problem to address, and there's no real way to answer that. There are so many problems, so many different potential solutions. But at heart, I'm, I'm a nerd, I'm a geek, and I love technology. I don't think it's perfect or the solution to everything, but it's what I love and it's what I know. And I realised that to be an informed donor, I need to know my subject. So what excites me is people accessing, creating, using knowledge to transform their own lives and their communities. I'd seen inspirational work in the UK from charities like My Society opening up parliamentary process or helping lower the barriers for citizens to engage in democracy. And so I wanted to know if the same kind of innovations were happening in developing countries. As soon as I started to look into it, I found there are extraordinary stories of techies, coders, civic activists across the developing world using technology to help solve the problems relevant to them. And I wanted to see if I could help support some of their work. And that led to the focus on of Indigo's work in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yes. So a combination of a tech focus yeah. and an Africa focus. Yes. So one of the oddities of... Um, British colonial history is that a lot of sub-Saharan African countries have systems of parliament or law that are very comparable to the UK systems. So um, you can transfer or learn from a lot of the civic tech in in innovation in the UK, but actually it's the local solutions that are really inspiring and potentially that the impact and potential change is much greater in those countries. So would you see the work of Indigo and indeed the philanthropy workshop as an attempt to actually undo some of the elitism of philanthropy and of society? But ultimately, philanthropy is also a product of that elitism. How do you square that circle? It's a tough but good question. Um, I think the philanthropy workshop aims to help donors be as effective and strategic as they can be, uh, but certainly to think widely about the causes of the problems we're trying to address. But to get through the door of the philanthropy workshop, you have to be a wealthy donor in the first place. It's um, self-defining, but people who have the ability and the inclination to give. Uh, I think there are lots of problems with power imbalance, with elitism in the world. But at the end of the day, I'd rather high net worth individuals were giving than not. And this is a way of helping them and enabling them to do so most effectively. Exactly. And that question about power, it's a big question in philanthropy. We've just been um, together at the um, ACF, the Association of Charitable Foundations Conference in London, where power and power imbalances came up and struck by the vision of Indigo, which says that it's a, 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 the vision is a world where the powerful are held to account by the people, leading to better lives for all. So clearly a social justice-oriented vision. But some have argued, and some are arguing, that philanthropy itself is an exercise in power. So I just wonder how you think philanthropy itself should be held accountable. Well, for me, um, I would love to see uh, far more scrutiny of philanthropy, more interest in it, more understanding of it. I think there's very little public understanding on what philanthropy involves. We understand charities very fairly well, and most people in their communities know and adore and support or volunteer with charities, but they may not know much about the funding behind them. Um, I'd love to see philanthropists feel more able and more confident to talk about their work, to defend the value of it where it exists. We've got a, 
a long legacy of really great social justice-based philanthropy in the UK, but also, to be honest, about failures, things we get wrong, and where that can be part of innovation as long as we're honest about what we've messed up. And that's a great moment, perhaps, to just talk about the context in which your family's philanthropy operates. So Indigo Trust, as I mentioned at the start, is one of a network of 18 Sainsbury Trusts. So you've got a huge variety within the family's structure of um, philanthropy, um, different focuses, different people, different causes, different amounts of money. Um, but a very important figure in that network is, is indeed your father, Lord David Sainsbury, who yeah. um, um, uh, pioneered of the Gatsby um, foundation um, or charitable trust, sorry. Um, uh, could you maybe explain a little bit about how the Sainsbury charitable, tr- charitable trusts work and fit together and how they address some of these issues you're talking about? Absolutely. Um, it was a real privilege for me not just to have the ability to give, but to start out at a young age with 17 other models of giving. And the family's very diverse. We have different interests, different ways of being involved in our giving. So um, there was no one set path for me to take. Though it was almost a kind of overload of choice in many ways. Um, but it meant that we had a very strong shared culture about giving. And I never doubted for a second that that's what I wanted to be able to do. Um, and my dad's been a great mentor to me on that journey, but also allowed me the freedom to find out my own way of doing it. And has it helped that you've got the latitude of having effectively your own trust or a trust, you know, with, with separate but alongside those others and giving you that freedom to experiment? Or have there been some members of the family who may be quite anxious about which direction you might take, you know, your philanthropic work? I think it's a very supportive uh, community and everyone is aware that you will find your own passion, your own subject, your own way of doing it. We try to learn and collaborate across the trusts, obviously, um, but we all follow our own passions and have the great freedom that we don't all have to agree on a single mission and strategy. I think there are, it's a tough challenge for families that have to work in that way together. Uh, and talking of agreeing or not agreeing, what about this question about publicity? Now, you sound like, from what you're saying, an advocate for more transparency, more visibility for philanthropy, maybe even more critical scrutiny. Now, I take it, I'm just looking at some of the Sainsbury family childhood trusts that aren't so well known, that maybe that puts you in a different place to some of them. So how uh, how, how does that work? Um, there must be some interesting debates in the family office about that. Yeah, I think that's another area where we have very diverse views and I hugely respect any philanthropist who wants to be relatively anonymous, to not um, be the, the front person or the public face of their work. Uh, the press in the UK is not always um, kind to donors, nor should it be. There should be critique and accountability. Um, but I love philanthropists who are humble about the work and the contribution that they're making. I've been on a bit of a journey for this myself, being starting off entirely private and terrified of any press attention at all, until I started to realise that I could add more to the causes I cared about if I was willing to be an advocate. And it's unjust that I'm sitting here being interviewed and that people will take an article from me. But if it means that I can talk about the causes I believe in, that may be more helpful potentially than the cheque I might write. And in that sense, maybe presence and expertise is not the same as promotion. And perhaps there's a, f- a fine line between the two. Yeah. Uh, is that, would you say that's the case? Uh, I think so. Uh, I think I want to add something um, where I can, um, but recognise the power and balance inherent in it. 
uh, and get out there, but hopefully contribute to a better, wider debate on the topic. And one of the big contributions that you have made um, is helping to found and develop and um, incubate Free60, giving this yeah. effort to uh, encourage um, donors to share data about their funding. How are you surprised that the success so far in bringing so many people on board. You said actually before we started that this was something that maybe was not part of a strategic plan, but actually has turned out to be something that appears to be very strategic and uh, gaining traction. Absolutely. It's been a huge surprise to me, a very pleasant surprise. Um, It was almost a whimsical moment when I was very frustrated about how hard I found it ever to find out what other donors were doing. And when I started out, I wanted to learn from other people, but it seemed very opaque to me. And I ended up spending my life in conferences, donor collaboratives, working groups, just to find out what other people were doing. And in a Google era, that seemed bizarre. So I'd been chair of a fantastic group called Publish What You Fund, who developed the International Aid Transparency Initiative. So I knew that I could look up where... DFID is spending money in Kenya, where the US aid is spending money in many countries, but I couldn't find out who was giving grants in King's Cross. And that seemed daft to me. So I asked the question, why isn't there an open data standard for British grant making? And I assumed there'd be a really good reason why not. And it turned out there wasn't. It's technically quite simple. It's just never been done before. I was wary of the typical grant maker's mistake of going out saying, I've got a great idea, and amazingly enough, lots of people want to work with you if you're willing to underwrite the work. Wanted to avoid that, so workshopped it, worked with data scientists, charity experts, and we built the first data standard, which is called the 360 Giving Standard. And then I've been going around persuading foundations that sharing their information about where they give grants is valuable to the whole sector. And it's been a wonderful surprise that we've now got over 94 foundations sharing over 24 billion worth of grants through the data standard, covering private foundations, lottery distributors, government departments, local councils, community foundations, even individual donors. You can search it through GrantNav and hopefully better grants data will lead to us all making better grants decisions. And in five or ten years' time, do you expect that number to rise exponentially? Will it be just a minority of trusts and foundations that aren't part of it, or or are you less ambitious? I'm pretty ambitious in this. I'd like it to become the norm. I'd like it to be more remarkable for somebody not to be open about where they're spending money. Um, If you've ever been a fundraiser in a small charity, you know how impossibly hard it is to find out where you should apply for funding. And actually, that's wasting time for the charities and for the donors, because we're getting applications that aren't relevant. We're sifting through lots of proposals. The amount of time lost to donors and charities is extraordinary. We can only make better and better informed decisions if we have better information. And in terms of it becoming the norm, mm. clearly um, uh, norms are changing, uh, particularly around transparency. But um, some argue they're not changing fast enough. And interestingly, the philanthropy think tank New Philanthropy Capital, they've been on this show actually, um, they came up recently with a proposal in uh, response to the, uh, the civil society strategy that the government was developing um, in the UK and the UK to say that tax breaks four foundations should be conditional on signing up to greater standards of transparency, for example, through the 360 giving standard. What did you make of that proposal when you read it? 
read about it? Firstly, I was really pleased that actually someone was considering 360 to be that useful that they wanted it to be mandatory. I've never advocated that because I wanted it to be a donor-led voluntary initiative where we said actually we'll hold ourselves to a higher standard and we'll do this not because the government's asked us but because we see the benefits to the charities that we're supporting and it's been wonderful to see so many donors and foundations come on board voluntarily. I think the trend is going in the right direction. Um, it's picking up speed already uh, but I hope we'll get to a state where it is the norm and then if it's built into SORP or accounting practices, um, it just becomes easier for everyone to do. Would there be anything that persuades you that perhaps that's too permissive an approach if, for example, these changes don't happen in the nature or the rate or scope to which you want, that actually you might think a bit more stick, regulatory stick might be necessary, particularly if foundations value the independence uh, to make sure that in order to maintain it, that they have to actually improve their standards. Could you see a scenario whereby actually you might support, not necessarily taking away tax benefits, but actually giving them for those that are willing to embrace those greater standards of transparency? I think philanthropists have to be willing to defend the value of our work. And if we say that there are benefits, that it's important to continue the framework for philanthropy, we have to be able to point to the work that we're doing and allow people to scrutinise it, to critique us, to question us. And it's very hard to do that if you can't see what we're doing. And one area where foundations and perhaps could be doing better, and they themselves in many ways are acknowledging that, is on questions not just of transparency, but diversity, uh, reflecting the society they intend to serve. Uh, do you have some hopes that actually data might inform debates about the diversity and the composition and makeup of foundation boards and staff as well? I think the diversity question is a hugely complicated one and more information has to make us face up to the lack of diversity in the sector. Um, it's not just a problem for the philanthropy sector, it's a problem for everyone at the moment, but I don't think we're doing enough. I'm excited to see it being discussed much more widely, to see great initiatives coming up around getting more diverse trustees, more diverse staff, and increasing the voice of um, beneficiaries, of users, of grantees in designing solutions, not just the governance of them. Um, that's probably the one area I'd like to see quickest change. And are you optimistic that, again, that can happen through cultural changes and norms, or do you think there needs to be a bit more of a kind of uh, regulatory approach? I hope it can be done through culture and norms. I never saw, thought we'd see change this quickly around open data. So if we can do that on what seems a quite nerdy and niche issue but has benefits for all, think how fast we can move when it's as critical as diversity. One of the questions that has been discussed um, in philanthropy circles in the UK is about the relationship between funders and, and grantees. Um, uh, questions about the barriers that sometimes exist, uh, the need to maybe some lower those barriers. Uh, that might be in the form of providing core funding, being more open. Clearly, data is part of that. What do you think could and should be done to kind of reduce those barriers and maybe democratise the, the space that we operate in? I think the barriers are often accidental. I'd love to see every decision maker in a foundation spend time working, perhaps as a volunteer or a staff member, for charities that are fundraising because it gives you a totally different perspective. My first ever work experience was in a small charity, and that gave me a lot of humility about the role of donors and what pain we can be to work with. So simply seeing it from the other side will make you want to reduce those barriers. Mm. They're bureaucratic, uh, there are power imbalances, but a lot of them are mistaken. And the 
best foundations I see and work with work constantly to try and reduce those barriers. Well, talking of the best foundations and maybe the most inspirational philanthropists, who other than your father would you say, who is an inspirational philanthropist to many, um, I know, um, uh, would you say has inspired you? Um, you talked, I think, previously about Quaker traditions and, and other social justice traditions. Um, where would you take some of your inspiration from in the world of philanthropy? That's a great question. I'm inspired by the Amidia Network, particularly when I started really looking into the power of technology and the work they put into helping capacity build for their grantees, not just with their funding, but helping charities to skill up, professionalise, go from a startup innovation to a major campaign. Um, I'm really excited about what the Big Lottery Fund is doing at the moment with their own digital transformation and the new fund they've announced to help charities transform digitally. Um, but it's often the quieter, more private philanthropists who I wouldn't name here, but who think very deeply about how they can honour the commitment and the work of the charities they're funding. Uh, and I, I hope to reach that level of thoughtfulness in my own giving. And there's probably a lot more to come on on that. Um, just one final question before we end. We are in the era, at least in the European context of Brexit, Britain leaving the European Union and debates about political philanthropy and the relationship between politics and philanthropy have kind of uh, been rising, um, not just in America, but now in the context of Brexit um, here. Um, your father, Lord David Sainsbury, has been a big advocate for supporting Europe, supported the Remain efforts. How do you see uh, the development of philanthropy in relation to the big political questions of the day? Is there a concern that this is an overreach of wealthy people into the political domain? Um, of course, he's also been a, been a minister in government as well. Or do you actually see this as something philanthropists need to be involved in, whatever their view on a topic like Brexit? They, they should be getting involved in these debates and backing the organisations, charities and think tanks that can advance the causes they believe in. I think the absolutely essential thing, and I think we get this right in the UK as a whole, is a complete separation of philanthropy from political funding. The two are very different. Um, and certainly our, our legal system here makes sure that you would not do political funding through a foundation. Um, I think it's very hard to look at the political problems we face, not just in the UK, but worldwide, and not want to get stuck into politics, whether it's party issues or campaigning, um, if you care about an issue, you want to put every resource you have into it. Um, I think we have to be transparent always uh, and absolutely clear about where the money is coming from, where it's going to, how it's used. I'd like to see more on that. And I know my dad's been transparent about everything he's done. Uh, I'm proud of that. But we have to be willing to get stuck in. Mm. And taking you back maybe then to your first job in politics, working, well, at least in government, in the civil service, mm. where do you think you can make more of a difference? In politics, uh, working for the Prime Minister or in, on strategy for policy development or in philanthropy? Um, uh, you've worked in both. What, what's your kind of impressions? In an ideal world, we have committed and passionate people working in every one of those sectors at the same time. I loved working as a civil servant. I was politically neutral, but loved the challenges of public policy, but realised that given the very unusual situation I've been born into, it would be arrogant of me to think that as a lone civil servant, I'd have greater impact than I could potentially through my funding. And that's why you're 
doing the work you're doing at, at Indigo and at 360 Giving. And I'm very grateful. And I know Alliance um, listeners and readers will, will be too for your time and for your insights and your expertise. I'd just like to end by thanking you, um, Fram Heron, for coming in today. Um, do check out the Indigo Trust and 360 Giving website to read more about Fran's work. And if you want more hard talk and reflective debate on philanthropy, check out all our podcasts online at alliancemagazine.org slash alliance dash audio. I hope you've enjoyed what we brought you in print and online at Alliance Magazine in 2018. I'll be joined by lots more leading philanthropists and practitioners in 2019, so stay tuned. In the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye.